Let us pray. Gracious Lord, teach us, mold us, grow us, help us connect with your love that changes everything. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Back in the year 1523, um, a guy named uh, John Fitzherbert, who was an animal trainer, said, wrote, he's the one who wrote this line that said, uh, you must train a dog while it's a whelp or a puppy, or you will not train it. And from his saying is where we got the saying, you cannot teach old dogs new tricks. Is that true? Those guys who, who do the show that's on the Discovery program, the Mythbusters, Adam and Jamie, they took this one on, and they went and they found two seven-year-old sibling dogs that were Alaskan, uh, how do you say it, Malahoots or something like that? Malamutes, Malamutes, who were seven years old. And I think they were, they said in dog years, or in human years, it'd be like 50-something, which doesn't seem that old. But, um, <laughs> but that's what they, and they went away for four days with these dogs trying to see if they could train them. And uh, when it was all over, yeah, they could sit, heal, lie down, shake hands, so they concluded, myth busted, you can teach an old dog new tricks. So there's hope for all of us in the room. And I want to talk about change today, but not just little tricks and not just little changes. I want to talk about transformation, which when you go look at like what Webster's, will, how it will define it, it will say a change in character or a change in condition. Like it's a big change. And I think we love these kinds of big changes. I mean, people buy all kinds of self-help books and people want the latest diet or the latest fad or a new wardrobe or whatever as part of this notion. But we're talking about going to the very core of who we are kind of a thing. And so what I want to do is I want to look at what is transformation in the Christian context. And I want to use the reading that we had, the first reading from about St. Paul as something for us to look at as we kind of think about this. When we start to think about transformation in the Christian context, Really, all of Christianity is about transformation. From the start and the whole journey as a disciple or as a Christ follower is ultimately about trans ongoing transformation. And when I think about that, I always think about how Paul, when he's writing to the Romans, a group that he's not met at this time, he gets to a place in the letter where he's talking about what it looks like to live out the Christian life. What's it, what's it going to be like? What's, what's the goal? What's the effort? What are we doing with that? And part of what he says, this is in um, the 12th chapter at the start of it. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And then he goes on, he says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is the will of God what is good and acceptable and perfect. And when we think about transformation in the spiritual context, in the Christian context, we're talking about this process by which the image of Christ is formed within us. And it's done for God's glory. It's done for us to experience this sense of abundance, and it's done for the sake of others. We have this teaching and commitment that as we lean into surrendering and being open to God, that his image will continually be formed in us in new ways. That people think that when you go back and you read like the fruit of the spirit 
in Galatians 5, that the more you live the Christian life, the more that fruit, the more the family likeness will be seen in you, the more the image of Christ will be seen in you. And there's such power in seeing that transformation take place. I mean, there are certain parts of the church where they want to always hold this up and have people talk about this transformation because there's so much power in it. And I want to, again, continue to look at this. And I want to do it in the context of looking at Paul. Now, Paul has a super unique conversion. Like, he's going to go through a transformation like this. But there's a whole lot of things going on with what we see with Paul today that we can pull out and say that, well, it's not all happening like it does with him. But at some level, it happens with all of us as we lean into this, into this part. And the first thing we get out of this is this notion of, of just a, a position of faith, which is initiated by God. When we start to believe, we start to change. And the thing about it is, I'll say more about baptism and infant baptism stuff in a minute, but when we start to believe, it changes us. But for many of us, there are all kinds of ways this happens. There's some people like Paul, where it's like an instant and it happens. And there are others of us that take years or decades before we really kind of really get to this place. I love the analogy that the Anglican bishop and biblical scholar N.T. Wright makes in his book, Simply Christian, where he makes the analogy that this is like you waking up in the morning from sleep. And um, I like the way he says, I'm going to read it at some length, how he describes it. He says, waking up offers one of the most basic pictures of what can happen when God takes a hand in someone's life. There are the classic alarm clock stories, like Saul of Tarsus, the story we read today, Paul, on the road to Damascus, blinded by a sudden light, stunned and speechless. He discovered that the God he'd worshipped had revealed himself in the crucified and risen Jesus of Nazareth. John Wesley found his heart becoming strangely warm, and he never looked back. They are, they and a few others are the famous ones, but there are millions more. And there are many stories thought they don't, hit, they don't hit the headlines in the same way of the half-awake, half-asleep variety. Some people take months, years, even decades, during which they aren't sure whether they're on the outside of the Christian faith looking in or on the inside looking around to see if it's real. As with ordinary waking up, there are many people who are somewhere in between. But the point is that there's such a thing as being asleep and there's such a thing as being awake. And it's important to tell the difference and to be sure you're awake by the time that you have to be up and ready for action. <coughs> and St. Paul is one of these alarm clock cases. I mean, he gets this, this wake up. And if you know the story, which I think most of you probably do, I mean, he has a radical turn because he's this guy that is persecuting the church. He's somebody that has gone out of his way to try to stamp out Christianity the way he has imprisoned investigated pursued he's been there presiding at the first death that's uh that's done for the, um, the first person to die for their faith Paul is there and it's interesting to think about that for a minute so he's been and he's he's now pursuing beyond Jerusalem trying to find other places where Christianity is going but the thing about it is think about where he is at this moment because he's been so in pursuit of this he knows, everything. he knows about the faith. He knows what the claims of Christianity are. He knows what they're claiming about Jesus as Messiah. That He knows what they're saying about fulfillment of Scripture and His resurrection. He knows all of this, and he's just simply rejected it. 
And I think it's great to pause there and think about how God doesn't give up on him. He never gives up on any of us and continues to pursue him. And he gets a call that nobody else gets. I mean, he gets treatment that others don't. So we, we can be envious of that. But he has this moment where he's on the road to Damascus and then he sees this light from heaven and these voices and he gets to have an encounter with Christ, an apostle out of time, as he, as he sort of says. That's what he gets, and it has this huge impact on him. And it calls him to a different place. And it's interesting to look at what he does next, how he responds. We get that he says he, he fell, Paul fell to the ground. He heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And he asked, who are you, Lord? He has this moment where he knows that this is a divine encounter. And he doesn't really know who it is. He's going to ask that question, but he knows it's Lord. He knows this is a divine encounter. And he's in that place of accepting that, acknowledging that, receiving that. And I think part of the transformation, the road of transformation for each of us, whether you're baptized as an infant or wherever you are, is some moment, someday, where you say, Lord, knowing someone's there. And it's a big moment and it's a big change when we get to that place. And really, um, there's a sense in which our baptisms have not really run their course until we get to that place. And it'll sound really evangelical when I say this, so I'm going to quote, just to make sure you know it's, it's bigger than that, I want to quote a Roman Catholic cardinal for a minute, the late Avery Dulles talking about this. This is what he says. The sacrament of baptism is not complete until it has been ratified by a personal confession of faith, accomplished with the help of the divine grace that's assured by the sacrament itself. But the force of the sacrament does not absolve us from the need of making the personal commitment of saying yes to the gift that God offers us when we consent to die to sin in order to live by the strength of the risen Christ. Now, he's not saying the sacrament isn't complete like oh, bring that kid back. We didn't get that thing right. <laughs> what he's saying is it hasn't reached its, its purpose, its full end, where it's going, or for the philosophers in the room, it's not reached its theological end until we get to that place where we say, Lord, knowing he's there and that we're willing to follow. To me, that's sort of the first big milestone, in a sense, on this road of transformation. And the second one, which Paul also models, is obedience because Jesus tells him in the encounter on the road here's what you need to do next you need to go to Damascus and you need to wait we're going to do this this and this and Paul does exactly that he has his his companions take him there and he's going to go and he's going to wait and he's going to do it and for us on the road of transformation we have to humble ourselves you know all the racehorses in the room have to humble themselves to say what do you want where am I to go? How am I to wait, even if it's against my personality, and be patient or whatever it is, because that's part of the surrender and part of the, this road of transformation, and Paul, Paul does it. And then we keep marching down this road. We'll see Paul doing some other things that I think, I think are part of the road of transformation because it takes us right away to looking at the place of spiritual practices in our transformation because Paul is told, when, when they have these visions later, we get this, there's all kinds of miracles in Paul's story, right? 
not only the road to Damascus, but then there's this vision that Ananias has, but the same, there's a vision Paul has where they both have visions about what's going to take place. And when, when God is talking, giving this vision to Ananias, he says, you're going to go find him and he's going to be in prayer. And he's also had this vision. But, but it raises this whole notion of Paul is converted now. I mean, like he's had this encounter and he's already sitting there in prayer the whole time. That's how Ananias is going to find him. And to me, it's this place where we have to come to this place where we know that transformation is not something that we ultimately do. God does it all. But our task is to bring about, in part, is to cooperate and to bring about conditions that allow God to work in that way. Not to get brownie points from doing our spiritual practices or not to show we're better than somebody else or not to do any of those kinds of things not to do our self-help thinking we're in control of it, but just to have the conditions where transformation can take place. I like the way the um, preacher John Ortberg talks about this. He, I've given this analogy before, but he says, when you think about this transformation and this road of discipleship, he said, there, think about it like somebody trying to cross the ocean. And there are maybe three modes that people may think about. There's the, the person who thinks it's all about what I do and my effort. And that's like a person who gets in a rowboat and thinks they're going to row all the way across the ocean. They're going to do it all themselves and where that's going to go. And then the other extreme are the people who say, well, it's not at all what I do. It's completely what God does. So I'm just going to sit here. He says that's the people who get on a raft and just float. He says he thinks the right way to view this is the the Holy Spirit's going to do all the work. It's like a sailboat. All the energy for the crossing is going to come from the wind, but you've got to put the sails up and you've got to know where the wind is and get the boat in the right place and know how you're going to do the stuff you need to do, that that's part of what our call is. That's the place, I think, when we think about spiritual practices, which we talked about back in Lent, in this road of transformation. I think the next thing we see with Paul that also applies to, uh, to us and everyone is as we continue on a road of transformation, There is a new sense of vocation, and it doesn't mean you're going to change what you're doing. Vocation means a calling. You may be doing the exact same thing you've always done, but now you're doing it with a purpose and with a love that comes from God. Or it could be a different thing. In Paul's case, he's going from where he was to, to he's being singled out. He's going to be my instrument to go to the Gentiles and to do all these different things. He's got a different vocation. But then we get what's really ultimately behind what's going to really make it all happen is the power of the Holy Spirit coming to empower that vocation. So you think about what we read about next in the, in the context of this thing that's going on. We get um, where Ananias is going to pray for him and says, receive the Holy Spirit. Because that's what's going to empower this journey that he's going on and this this. Um, reaching out to the Gentiles. It's all going to be the Holy Spirit empowering it and leading it. And that's such a, a super important aspect of this, transforma- this ongoing transformation that we have. And some of you who are bold may say, well, maybe that's what I should do. I should have somebody put hands on me like Ananias did on Paul and pray for the Holy Spirit. And others would hear that and shriek and say, don't dare do that. That's that crazy stuff. I just want to say, oh, it's okay. It's already been done. Those of you who raised in the church will remember now, maybe, that at your confirmation, 
the bishop put his hands on you and prayed for the Holy Spirit to come and empower you. That's already taken place. I think the, the bigger question for us is do we have the cells up? Are we wanting to move and to get that and have the Spirit move us and, and take us to those different places? So I think that is um, the, sort of the next big piece that we see in the transformation. There's one more thing that I want to look at in this transformation process that is there, but I don't think gets a whole lot of attention. And um, it can maybe slide by us. I'm going to read what it says about Ananias when he comes to um, when he comes to Paul and begins to pray. What he says, it starts out um, by saying, "So Ananias went and entered the house, and he laid his hands on Saul, and he said, "Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on your way here has sent me, so that you may regain your sight." And be filled with the Holy Spirit. But notice how he started. Brother. What a big change. I mean, Ananias already knows he's on the way to Damascus to persecute. He's the one who's been trying to do all this stuff to stamp out Christianity. And now he's going to call him brother. In an instant, Paul has become part of a community. And more than that, Paul has become family. This transformation process that goes on with all of us as we lean into it, it's an incremental thing, and it relies on us doing our part to cooperate with different aspects of conditioning and the, and the spiritual practices. But in this world, it's always going to involve us together as a community, as a family. And we'll have these, we're going to have these disciplines that we do that are ones we do alone, ones that are silence and solitude and reading scripture alone and doing prayer alone and retreats and self-reflection and all the other stuff that we'll do. But a huge piece of this is that we do this, we do these things as a family, a community, the worship, the corporate prayer, the teaching, communion, Sabbath, hospitality, Caring for others, all of this done as a community, spiritual friendships, discipleship, all that kind of stuff. And so I'm extremely, extremely happy that we have the ability for people to join us online. I've got friends and family watching right now. But for those of you who are in Dallas and are healthy and well, there's nothing like being a community as part of this journey that we do as a family, as a community, as an aspect of this transformation. I want to wrap things up by just saying this road to transformation. Paul has a weird thing. It's a one of. But we can look at what happens with Paul, I think, and see that that's part of this ongoing transformation that we all go through. This moment of coming to a place where you cry out, Lord, and you know he's there. This thing about belief. This moment where we submit and we, we're going to engage in obedience with what we do. This aspect of spiritual disciplines of prayer and all the other stuff that we do this empowering by the Holy Spirit for this whole journey and embracing and welcoming and knowing that we're family as we continue on this process. I will end all that by just reading. I, I think it's exciting to see the transformation that takes place. I'm going to end by reading an epitaph that some of y'all will have heard, but this is on a tombstone of John Newton. And we, we sing various versions in here of Amazing Grace, and y'all know the story I think about all the bad stuff he was in in life. He was a slave trader, all the stuff he did. But the radical transformation he goes through 
is the kind of transformation that, that at some level goes through all of us. And I want to just read two things. One is the one first sentence of Wikipedia on John Newton. You get a sense of how much transformation he went through. It says, a captain of slave ships who later became an investor in the slave trade, but subsequently became an abolitionist. Full stop, you get a sense of the transformation. John Newton wrote his own epitaph on his tombstone. This is what it said. John Newton, clerk, once an infidel and libertine, a servant of slaves in Africa, was by the rich mercy of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, preserved, restored, pardoned, and appointed to preach the faith he had long labored to destroy. We have a God who transforms. Amen. Amen.